It's the weekend edition of FAQ NYC, the New Yorkist podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city, where we step back from the rush of the news cycle and take deeper dives and different looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Harry Siegel, here with the inimitable Alex Brooklyn. Hello. Hello. And joining us right now is none other than Anne Nocenti, the, among other things, journalist, filmmaker, longtime New Yorker, and Marvel Comic Books editor and writer, whose work on Daredevil captivated me as a kid growing up here, and still stands up going back to it now. Annie is writing for Marvel again now, among other places, and she's here to talk about her New York story, and the New York story she was able to tell through pulpy superheroes. Taking things from the Daily News to the Daily Bugle, you could say. Starting before those characters became valuable IP, not casually tampered with for movies and such. Annie, welcome. And do you want to start with how you came to New York and then to uh, comic books in an era when that was a much smaller world and also very much of a uh, boys club? Yes. Hi. Thanks for having me. Hey. Um, so in the old days, you would just look at the Village Voice and I answered an ad in the Village Voice and went up to Marvel Comics and got a job, which seems insane now because no one can just answer an ad in the Village Voice and go up. But I had just read uh, a passage in Henry Miller's, one of his books, Rosie Crucifixion, I think, where he had where he had, had the balls to just go into one of these big towers and walk into the president's room and say, you should hire me. And he didn't get hired, but I was inspired by that. So I walked into Jim Shooter's office at Marvel Comics and I said, started like running a bunch of bullshit about, you know, Lichtenstein and Warhol and pop culture and all kinds of stuff, having no idea what Marvel Comics was all about. And he hired me. So it was basically a line of bullshit that I ended up then um, working for a decade in the Marvel bullpen which, as we know, old newsrooms were not remote. Everyone was right there making jokes, torturing each other. I mean, the Marvel bullpen was pretty much an insane place where there was this guy, uh, Mark Grunwald, who came in wrapped in saran wrap one day just for the heck of it. And people would turn their offices upside down or move into the bathroom. I mean, bullpens, classic old New York bullpens were crazy places. So that was my training. So how old were you when you walked into that office? And what was your life like in New York? Like, when had you moved here? And what 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 is the story between you moving to New York City proper and you walking into that office? What was your life like? Uh, I was an artist, and I had come to Manhattan with a with a portfolio full of art, and got rejected everywhere I went. <laughs> and so I started working in Forty Second Street. There was a club called Giggles, and I got a job at Giggles. And Giggles, everything on the menu was a joke, and they're hanging chickens, and we had to wear. Uh, T-shirts that said giggles over our tits, which I guess was a way of saying jiggles. And, you know, it was basic sexist culture of 1980s Manhattan, but I loved it. And I loved 42nd Street. So it was just the chaos of it. And 
I think I was a big Jane Jacobs fan. So, you know, her whole thing of stoop life and eyes on the street made a lot more sense to me than the Robert Moses who wanted to dissect wrecked neighborhoods and put, you know, highways. And re really, there's many, many forces that wrecked New York City. You once told me that you, for a really long time, didn't live in a normal apartment. Oh, yeah. So my first place in New York City was um, a, uh, it was Coogan's Gym, which was, the Coogan building was at uh, 23rd and 6th, and it was the first athletic club for men only. And I got a, I, I got a room in a loft on the, in the tennis court, what used to be the tennis court. And right downstairs was New York's first swingers bar, uh, you know, swingers <laughs> bars back then. You'd go in, you were a swinger looking for a pickup. Now that's Tinder, I guess. But back then you'd go to a swinger bar. And so I moved from, from there to 12th Street, which was an old hospital and I lived in the basement in the methadone clinic. So my room had these sliding nurse doors. And from there, I moved to a meat locker on Hubert street. It was an old like place where they used to hang meat. So it had like wood metal, wood metal, and kind of like a, a Wilhelm Reich's um, orgone boxes. You know, which is just so I was in there and I was right behind the fish tank in club area and club area, because they were so noisy, gave me a deal that anytime I wanted, I could just walk in. And so I would be like in my bathrobe and my pajamas and my slippers. And I would just be, I can't sleep you guys. And I would go into area club and I became almost like, what was his name? Gigante. Who is the guy that used to walk around the mobster that Vincent, the chin uh, gigante. Yes. Uh, whose brother was was uh, a priest in the Bronx and who walked in his bathrobe right by where Alex lives on Bleecker Street <laughs> as part of his legal defense. Only, uh, I think, I'm pretty sure you're <laughs> way hotter than him. <laughs> and, and probably... I was really... I was really young, yes, and so I used to wander around area in my pajamas, and people just got used to me. Oh, that's the girl that lives behind the fish tank. So then I moved to the building. I'm in Wait, now, just for curiosity, was, what kind of price range? What are you paying for these meat locker apartments in like nothing? I mean, it was back then, maybe uh, you know, two hundred bucks a month tops. Mm. Oh. You know, so. Uh, then I was in the bar River Run, which is River Run is right on Franklin Street. And it, it's named after the first and last word of James Joyce's Ulysses, the River Run. And I was in the bar and the bartender said, go right across the street. It's Alexander Calder's building. And they're really nice to artists. So I got this raw space that was filled with holes and metal filings, I guess, from whoever was building Calder's sculptures, and it was a mess. And my friends came over right before I was going to sign the lease, and they were crying like, pigs wouldn't live here. And I'm like, yeah, I like pigs. So <laughs> I took the lease here, and, you know, it's a rent-stabilized loft that I've never left. So, yeah, so I've never lived in a normal apartment.
jumping forward a little in time. Uh, I brought up Daredevil before. When you were writing those comics, uh, can you talk about getting some of the actual New York you were seeing, this this Times Square you loved, uh, the Manhattan of the period, and representing it in this sort of, you know, spandex and uh, super heroic and in some ways absurd uh, pulp New York? Well, when they gave me the assignment to write Daredevil, my brother is a lawyer, and my brother was with uh, Claire Schulman, then Mario Cuomo, then Spitzer. He was one of Spitzer's Raiders. He, you know, he was like a lifelong New York lawyer. And so uh, I was kind of inspired by my brother, and um, I just started making, you know, I was sort of more interested in the the legal cases because Matt Murdoch his is an attorney he's blind so it's a play on blind justice and when justice doesn't work he uses his fists his vigilantism he's also a catholic who wears a devil suit he's got like so many contradictions that he's he's really fun to write and so I used to just go to 42nd Street and wander Times Square and eavesdrop and pull everything from the street that I could. Like if a bunch of kids skateboarded by, they went in the comic. If a crazy person, I would just be scribbling things they said. So I think I was a frustrated journalist at that time. So I just... I stole everything. I stole everything from the street, put it in the Daredevil comic, and did a lot of stuff that I don't think you could do today. I mean, you you were hitting on alcoholism, uh, animal rights, um, vigilantism, as you mentioned, feminism in some really interesting ways. Like, Given the, the, this incredible and absurd character, you know, this wealth of contradictions, uh, th- th- that whole New York, h- how do you work those in? How do you pace those to to tell these sorts of stories? And maybe in the course of that, you could talk a bit about one character you created, uh, Typhoid Mary, who, who is uh, yeah. has different powers with different aspects of her. Um, she's got, I think, disassociative identity yes, disorder. Call, maybe? Disassoci- yeah, she has disassociative disorder. So uh, I spent a lot of my youth, (laughs) well, in college, working at Wissaic and other kind of um, institutions for the criminally insane. And so I put a lot of that stuff in my comics. And also, um, you know, very influenced by the layering of all the eras of Times Square. So you had the waves of immigrants that came. I thought Mary. Yeah the African-Americans that came and got pushed out by the Irish and the rise of the Westies. And then you had, you know, the Gambinos and all that kind of ended with the Javits Center and the Giuliani era, you know, prosecutorial. And he, he kind of, you know, the whole idea that cleaned up Times Square and made it a sanitized, safe place for tourists. And you lost, to me, you lost... Times Square was lost. And, you know, I was friends with some of the beats, like Herbert Hunky, who was the basis for uh, Junkie, 
in Burroughs's Junkie and Gregory Corso. And, you know, they would they would just tell me stories about what it was like back then, including Gregory would would show me how you could go underground, go down this alley, go through that door and go on this underground passage and pop up somewhere else. And it was sort of talking to Gregory Corso. I ended up coming up with this thing called Gotham Underground for DC Comics that was all about everything that was going on under Manhattan. So so when did you, did Marvel like lend you out like a studio or had you left Marvel at that point when you started? No, developing? I did. Uh, I did 10 years at Marvel. I was, I was called the mutant editor. Uh, I was, I edited the X-Men and new mutants and books like that. And then I wrote Daredevil and a bunch of stuff. Then I left the field, became a journalist and wrote for, well, <laughs> Covert Action, which we chronicled the lies of the CIA, Lies of Our Times, where we chronicled the biases in the New York Times. Everyone I tell about this is floored that it was a print magazine yeah. that chronicled everything that the New York Times got wrong. I mean, which it was I think a great job. <laughs> You'd get into work and we'd all just open our New York Times and we would just say, wow, look at that. They have like a, a bias, you know. And I, so I wrote some stories. I wrote some stories about um uh, there was a serial killer that was killing prostitutes and it was kind of about how the hierarchy of murder and how some people no one cares if they're if they're killed and they used to call it nhi no humans involved no humans involved was a term that the police used for vagrants homeless people prostitutes drug dealers i mean the in in the 80s these that strata of humanity was not considered human you know you can go back and read like uh the 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 writings of early america and how they talked about the native americans as savages you know there's been different periods of time where certain type certain humans were not considered fully human so um and then after that, I worked, uh, I was an editor on Prison Life magazine, where we uh, interviewed prisoners. It was all, it was all for and by convicts. And so we had in-house cooking where there was like, this was Richard Stratton and, and Kim Wozencraft's uh, publication that I was a writer for. And then I did some, I used to go into prisons and do some like poetry workshops and writing workshops. Uh, and I was the maid of honor in a sing sing wedding once. That was fun. <laughs> Wait, whose wedding was it? It was actually there was a guy that had written a letter to the New Yorker, and it was such an articulate letter that one of my friends fell in love with with him, and they got married in Sing Sing, and uh, I was the maid of honor, and I met the best man, and the best man was this guy. Anthony Pappas, who was trying to paint him, paint his way out of prison, but you know, and this is Rockefeller era. They were both in for drugs, meaning thirty years to life. This was yeah. the, the Rockefeller drug laws that really screwed a lot of people. Um, and I ended up taking his portfolio of artwork around Manhattan and getting him a show. My friend Beck Underwood had a 
knew if knew someone who had an outsider art gallery. The day he got out of prison, he had an art show. The girl that ran the gallery, he married her. And it was sort of like, you know, just one of those New York stories. I actually ran into him when he had a show on Governor's Island, this like big prison art show that had yeah. like featured his work in the entire downstairs when Governor's Island started doing those art residencies for people. Somebody collected prison art. So I've seen his art, actually. I had no idea. So you have in uh, Marvel, the Morlocks, who are all these mutants who live in the tunnels under Manhattan. Typhoid Mary, we talked about for a minute, you know, she's got. I guess what you call it, pyrokinetic powers with one personality. She's a uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, break typhoid Mary down for us. I and- think I think basically in comics at that time, for one thing, there weren't a lot of women writing comics, and the women in comics were either the good wife like Sue Storm, or they were the you know Karen Page and Daredevil was a prostitute. You know, they were they were like divided into Madonna whore, you know, and or just like uh, appliances or accessories like the secretary, this or that. So it was kind of a reaction to me not seeing that many powerful females in comics. And I thought, you know, because I had worked in a lot of asylums. (laughs) And so I decided to make a character with multiple personality disorder, which I don't think, you know, they don't call it that anymore. And it might not even exist really. Uh, But I made one character, a man-hating feminist who would go rob the police station of the files of men that got away with beating women. And then eye for an eye, literally beat the man up the same way that they had beaten up a woman. And then, typhoid used her sexiness to get what she wanted out of men mary was the innocent female so there were four personas and one of them had a board where she'd stick up on the wall all the clues of what the other personalities were up to and she would solve crimes that way so that was a fun uh character if I remember, one of them was was involved romantically with uh, one of one of the personalities was involved romantically with Matt Murdock at the time. Uh, uh, you know, another one was was doing work for the Kingpin and the mob. Uh, the phrase yeah. was something like a love maker and a man hater. Yes. Yes. So she yeah, she sort of like used all her personalities to uh, nail Daredevil, you know, the made him fall in love with the innocent one without realizing that the the bad one was the one that he was fighting. So, um, you know, and also I just wanted to, I've, I've always been in love with the layering of history of especially Times Square. And, you know, you go all the way back to like Gangs of New York or our friend Lucy Stantz, uh low life book and Damon Runyon. And I mean, I'm, I, it's just, it's just to me that kind of layering of Manhattan of all those eras is, is amazing. And then we were talking earlier off before the pod um, about how I did a story where a guy named Donald Trump 
made a tower in Manhattan and cut off the the light in Poison Ivy's Arkham Asylum. And she went nuts and went after him. And it was like, this was like early 90s when Donald Trump was just a developer. And we all hated him for his big towers and his gold teas and all that stuff. I mean, he was despised. And this was the 90s. And so I was lucky enough to be able to, like, torture him in a comic 20 years before he became president. And was he Donald Trump in the comic? I think you're telling me some of the times he was and some he wasn't. Well, because at the last minute, somebody, my editor, was was like, wait a minute, isn't this the real guy? And I was like, yeah, he's an asshole developer. And they were like, well, we're going to have to change that name. And at the last minute going to press, they changed all the names. I think he's like Dan Trump or something like that. You know, it's interesting talking about all the layers because you live in this apartment and I live in an apartment. And when you, you know, you've built it up from this kind of sculpture scrapyard that it was, I've put new flooring. A lot of people I know who've like lived in the same apartment for many years or lived there since they were born, they've had it redone or they've redone things themselves. And when you do that, um, when you peel back the layers of your wall, you see like there's one portion of the wall with like lath work from the 1910s. And then there's some weird little items in another part of the wall that was clearly re-drywalled and redone in the 70s. And I always thought it would be just so interesting to be able to like go through. I think that's why people like us are always attracted to going into construction sites. You and I went romping around a construction site, I think last year while I was uh, pregnant or like two years ago. And just like looking at all the different layers from each decade and how, what building materials they used and things like that. And when you layer your city, both in like the work you did for Marvel and the work you did for DC, how much from your own, like, uh, is there any parallels we can draw directly from your own experience with some of these places? Oh, yeah. The, the, um, like when I first moved to this loft, the Alexander Calder loft, it had, it was originally a cheese factory. So there were rows and rows of like faucets and, plaster tunnels and I don't even know how they make cheese but um and then but my next door neighbor blocked bricked up one of my windows and so that was sort of the double motivation for poison ivy getting her window blocked up uh, her losing her light because of Donald Trump's building um but the other thing is my most recent work the seeds uh is is about fake news and it was and it, it's interesting like we're heading into a governor's race and i live also upstate new york and upstate new york a surprising amount of people want to get rid of hokel because they think she's going to start quarantine camps and they believe it and, and upstate New York is so obsessed with this quarantine camp thing. And the genius of how they put this fake news out was they it goes back to uh, somebody who proposed a bill when Ebola was hitting. And 
there, there were court papers about the Ebola case and how maybe they'd have to do quarantine camps. Now that went nowhere. So someone has taken these court papers and presented them in a way that has all of upstate New York, an amazing amount of people can't, you know, you see a legal paper, Supreme Court, mm -hmm. and, you know, this you think it's true. And they think that there was actually a judgment against Hochul for trying to start quarantine camps in upstate New York, when actually it's a bill that never made it, that was proposed by someone else about Ebola. Fake news is becoming so sophisticated that, you know, there are some very smart people behind this, that they would take those court papers, reconfigure them and get people believing this. And how do you fight that? So, you know, we did a, me and David Aha did a comic book called The Seeds that was kind of all about this, the rise of fake news. And, um, you know, so it's one of my obsessions and I'm sure it's your obsessions too, is that how the what how the hell are we supposed to have reality when this the fake news is so sophisticated? There's the stupid end of it, you know, where people are just saying stupid things, but there's also some very smart people that are putting together these scams to get people to be like, oh my God, Hochul, she's doing these quarantine camps. You know, I mean, how do you fight that? So in 2014, Donald Trump is starting to think more seriously, the credited at the time about his next moves, about how he's going to position himself against Obama and lots of other things. Just in time, very conveniently, starts banging the drum hard about Ebola and how can uh, Obama be letting these people in? We need to close our borders and fast all this stuff. The governor of New Jersey at the time is Chris Christie, besties with Andrew Cuomo, uh, Port Authority pals, and various things. And some decent, brave nurse who'd been working in Africa with people with Ebola flies back. Ebola is highly symptomatic. You're not, there are not secret carriers of Ebola. He sets up a quarantine for this nurse out of the blue when she comes in to say, look, I'm tough. I'm doing something. Christy does not win anything that's circulating in upstate New York about this or about, you know, legislation that was never passed, something else. But there are all these little seeds of things that happened. And then people sophisticated or just blunt, who just keep banging those drums and looking for moments of advantage with them, which brings us very nicely back to, I'm sorry, and you do have a fan here, uh, Typhoid Mary, for one, one second, because Mary Milan, you know, who's a woman who was born in Ireland uh, and then is working as a cook here um, and then is evidently spreading typhoid, is uh, imprisoned and removed is freed, starts working again under a different name after promising never to do food work again, um, and then is sent to Randall's Island, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, where, where she lives the rest of her life. And I'm curious if past the name, when we're talking about the layers of history, and you can see it you know, in the cross-section and the walls of your apartment, if, if any of that history ended up uh, in character, and where else you, you sort of found 
moments of like real New York history and have been able to put them into a comic book wife. Oh, um, well, I mean, I'm a eavesdropper. So a lot of times I would just go sit on a stoop. And that's, you know, one of the reasons I love Jane Jacobs is because she she was a stoop sitter and she felt like your streets were safer. The more eyes you had on a street, the safer they were. And so, I mean, for me, I just used to eavesdrop a lot and in Times Square and anything I overheard, uh, overheard, I would just stick in a comic. Like I have scenes that take place in subways that were just me eavesdropping on people and sticking it in a in a comic book. I mean, it's theft. It's all theft. Writers were thieves. You know, we steal everything. You were credited with creating the first trans character in comic book history. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Um, and and writing that and how you, you know, I mean, we've talked about it, but I think that's something very interesting. The um, One of my strange habitats, the one I was saying on 12th Street that was a methadone clinic, the there was a deal with the, uh, the super, let the working girls hang out in the lobby during like uh, rain and snow and that kind of stuff. So I got to know a lot of the working girls on... 12th street and um there was one girl there was one who i always thought she was a girl but she was a boy and we used to have long talks about how she you know knew from a young age that she was a girl and uh she she kind of inspired me to write this character jesse drake in a marvel comic in like 1990 and actually she encounters typhoid mary who is a feminist like a rabid feminist and when she finds out that this girl she was helping was really a boy she got really pissed off you know and it took her a while to adapt from that but it's sort of the first and only trans character ever in a marvel comic back then the ip wasn't valuable we didn't have the movies yet so you could do these anything you wanted really now the ip is so valuable that they're very um tight about all that stuff but there's a sci-fi writer uh charlie jane anders who is just finally going to be writing the second, you know, trans character for Marvel Comics, and she is trans. So I was kind of an imposter. She's the real deal. It's interesting that that storyline came up because it's not unusual right now when you see a lot of uh, uh, online discourse about who is and isn't defined by women, especially between young trans women and older feminists. And it seems like you had, you sort of captured that, uh, you know, 30 years prior between Typhoid Mary and remind me the name of the character, Jesse. Jesse Drake. Jesse yeah. Drake. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting because the feminist movement has always been divided on empowerment of women versus exploitation of women. So you would have women that were like, kind of like, sorry, but I want to make money off my body. I want to be a sex worker. I'm empowered to be a sex worker. And then you had 
the Andrea Dworkins, who would be like, all sex is rape, you know? So you'd have this kind of dichotomy between the thin line between empowerment, sex work as empowerment and sex work as degrading. And, you know, I knew I had a lot of friends that did sex work and I used to go to Pony. I don't know if Pony still exists. Prostitutes of New York. They had their own magazine. They had their own radio station. And they used to have their meetings right over here in, uh, in I'm in Tribeca, right over here in the Harmony. The Harmony was like a, was a strip club. And they would have their meetings there. And you'd have like Annie Sprinkle, the performance artist. They had their own radio show. They had their own lawyers. And we would have long discussions about is sex work exploitative or empowering? You know, it, and by sex work, I mean, it could even be just performance art, you know, movies, porn movies. So uh, that was something that really divided the feminist movement. And still does. I learned about this set of issues for the first time reading Daredevil comics, where this would be discussed when I was like 12 or 13, didn't fully understand. I'm like, this is fascinating. Uh, it, it was weirdly, these comic books were sort of my one of my early windows into what was actually happening in New York. And I could see the echoes as I would go out and be around the city. Uh, with the conversations people were having and what was happening around me. Uh, I did have one thing I wanted to circle back with you on here. You've mentioned a couple of times that, that you'd been doing work in asylums. I don't think you said what, what that work was and when in your life that was. So I was hoping you could go back to that and tell us just a little more. Well, when I was a kid, uh, my parents really believed we should all do uh, a certain amount of volunteer work. And so, like, my brother was a big brother to Yusuf Salim, who went on to be accused as, you know, the Central Park jogger, uh, the Central Park Five. And so he, Yusuf was in our house as we were growing up. Um, my parents sort of placed me at this place called the Christian Children's Retreat, which was where people put all manner of babies and adults that were either crazy or deformed. And then when I went to college, I worked at the Wasaic, which was an asylum for not the criminally insane, but also what they used to call borderline, which is if you committed crimes and you were ADIQ, I think it was, you couldn't go to a regular prison. And, you know, it was eye-opening and enlightening for me to work in those places because Wasaic was a little bit like Willowbrook. You know, it mm. was it was uh, frightening. It was really badly treated. And actually, I was just thinking about Nellie Bly, uh, you know, who famously, you know, went undercover in an asylum. Ten days uh, in a ten days in an asylum was her piece yeah. about her experience yeah. there. Yeah, and what a brave act that was in what that would have been turn of the last century yeah 19 i i forget the exact year but yeah turn of the last century um because it was brutal then brutal and that was at blackwell's asylum on yeah. blackwell's island yes which is now Roosevelt's Island or i think it's roosevelt's or? island um so so and then for mm -hmm. in 
I did a story where I put Spider-Man in an asylum. I put uh, Peter Parker in, his, in an asylum and no one believed he was Spider-Man. I did a, a, a bunch of um, stories with in Kid Eternity where I also, um, <laughs> you know, had a bunch of stories that took place in asylums where everyone thought they were Jesus Christ, of course. Of course. Is- <laughs> so- for um, the last question to close us out here for the, you know, famous woman who put Spider-Man in an asylum, um, what kind of stuff are you doing now? You're back at it with comics. Um, you mentioned yeah. the seeds. Uh, yeah. um, you had a lot of projects going on at the start of the pandemic. And so what are you kind of, what are you doing right now? What's been happening? What What are you writing? Where can people look for you to read the stuff you're doing for uh, comic companies and publishers and things like that. Well, I just did two graphic novels for the Karen Berger, who is kind of a legendary editor. I used to, we used to think of each other as our doppelgangers because I was one of the few females at Marvel and she was one of the few females at DC. She started the Vertigo imprint famously, you know, Alan Moore's work, uh, Neil Gaiman's work. So I did two graphic novels for her, one with David Aha that is kind of about um, what if we could live without tech, but it's also very much about fake news. It, it takes place in a newsroom. And um, and then also Ruby Falls with Flavia Biondi. And that that is kind of about my obsession with how, no memory we have is accurate. Like all we do is polish our memories. The further away we get from the actual moment, the further they get away from the truth. And so those are my two graphic novels. And now I'm back at Marvel Comics. And Marvel like is kind of very kind to us old timers. They bring us back to sing our 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 favorite, our old hits. So I just did a Typhoid Mary, an Electra, a Daredevil. Now I'm doing some X-Men and it's kind of like they trot us out on stage and we sing our old, great old hits. <laughs> and then, yes. Annie, thank you so much for, for, for joining us for this. Let, let me just say that, that you, you came to Daredevil right after Frank Miller. He did an incredible, awesome run. And I think maybe for that reason, I, 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 you know, 10 years old or whatever, I don't know, that at that point and without the IP part, that you got to do these hits because you got to write awesome stories that could go in really different deep directions and like touch on what was actually happening in New York and and have that resonate. And uh, I I don't know. That's just so cool. Thank Um, you. And I'm actually a really big fan of FAQ NYC. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. FAQ. This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc/slash donate if you'd like to pitch in. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists online at thebrick.house. 
Our hosts this episode were Alex Brooklyn and Harry Siegel. Our executive producer is Harry Siegel, and I'm our engineer, Adam Kimera. A special thank you to our guest, Anne Nocenti. And thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.